Hello, welcome to Science Factual. Prepare yourself for factual download. Sequence commencing. I love me some Cantina Band because you know that means we're covering the original Star Wars trilogy. Thanks John Williams for being super awesome. Welcome to this episode of Science Factual. I'm your host and fellow nerd Reese Hendrick and today we're taking a dive into perhaps the most well-known sci-fi trilogy of all time. I'm talking episodes 4, 5, and 6 of Star Wars y'all as well as the Rogue One movie. By the way, the piece you just heard was composed by John Williams for the Bithian band we all know and love, Figrin and the Modal Nodes, who you can catch at the Mos Eisley Cantina just about any old time. I mean, just listen to those butthole mouths play. Now, truth be told, I started off as a fanboy before converting to a Trekkie. But back in the day, I was a full-fledged Rebel Alliance fighter pilot taking on the Empire single-handedly in my cardboard X-Wing as a rogue Red Squad member. A boy can dream. Alas, I'm too tall for most planes, and I prefer handling my lightsaber nowadays, if you know what I mean. Before we travel to a galaxy far, far away, I'd like to issue a... SPOILER ALERT! SPOILER ALERT! Yes, I know. It seems arbitrary at this point to have to even consider a spoiler alert for Star Wars. I mean, who doesn't at least know about the basic plot and characters concerning the original Star Wars trilogy? In case you're the one person who hasn't had Star Wars shoved down their throat at one point or another, that spoiler alert is for you. For everyone else, enjoy these opening crawler recaps and facts before an awesome interview with this week's guest, Danielle Porter. We met up before her weekly comedy showcase at Zeugel House Brewing in Southeast Portland to discuss the original trilogy and the more recent Rogue One tie-in. You're also going to hear a recent set of Danielle's at the end of this episode, so be sure to stick around for that as well. Alright, let's get into the opening crawls and synopses for each film, starting with Rogue One, since it's a tie-in to Episode 4, and then we'll take it from there. This ancillary film actually didn't get the opening crawl treatment. It took a group of super nerds to make one that suited the content of the film, but they sure did a good job. The fan-fueled version reads... Fear. The dreaded Galactic Empire reigned supreme in the wake of the Jedi Order's violent genocide. The final remnants of the Old Republic nears the brink of extinction. The only hope lies with the Rebellion, who in their fight against the tyrannical Empire have begun to garner support with the secessionists of the Imperial Senate. Construction of a powerful space station is underway that will reinstate fear within the Senate. In hopes of gaining high favor with the Emperor, Director Orson Krennic skirts the Outer Rim territories to recruit an exiled scientist who has the ability to see this superweapon's plans to fruition. In case you were wondering why Rogue One never did feature any crawl, director Gareth Edwards has the answer, and it's one that makes perfect sense. Revealing that there were plans for one in the original screenplay, the decision was made to cut it after the team pointed out that Rogue One was a quote, standalone film and not part of the sagas. Regardless of that assessment, I wanted to bring this film up first because of the way it ties directly into the nature of the scene setting of A New Hope. The events that transpire throughout the film and the climax are directly related and work as a great setup in case you wanted to watch in the order of Rogue One, then episodes 1 through 6. And that brings us to the first release of the franchise, A New Hope, which was released in 1977. Hey, Dad, why don't you tell the story about when I was born? Yeah, we got halfway home with the afterbirth before we had to go back to the hospital and swap it out for Meg. The end. Now I got a better one. This is a story of love and loss, fathers and sons, and the foresight to retain international merchandising rights. This is the story 
of Star Wars. Let's begin with part four. If you haven't seen Blue Harvest or the rest of the Star Wars trilogy by Family Guy, I highly encourage you to pause this right now and go watch them in succession. Hell, if you've already seen them, go ahead and watch them again. They're freaking hilarious. Anyway, here's the crawl for New Hope. It is a period of civil war. Rebel spaceships striking from a hidden base have won their first victory against the evil Galactic Empire. During the battle, rebel spies managed to steal secret plans to the Empire's ultimate weapon, the Death Star, an armored space station with enough power to destroy an entire planet. Pursued by the Empire's sinister agents, Princess Leia races home aboard her starship, custodian of the stolen plans that can save her people and restore freedom to the galaxy. By the way, when Star Wars was first released in 1977, The Crawl did not feature the text A New Hope. That came later after the film was a success. In fact, it was just known as Star Wars until Empire was actually greenlit and there had to be a differentiation between the films. Speaking of which, that brings us to The Empire Strikes Back, which was released in 1980. It is a dark time for the Rebellion. Although the Death Star has been destroyed, Imperial troops have driven the Rebel forces from their hidden base and pursued them across the galaxy. Evading the dreaded Imperial Starfleet, a group of freedom fighters led by Luke Skywalker has established a new secret base on the remote ice world of Hoth. The evil Lord Darth Vader, obsessed with finding young Skywalker, has dispatched thousands of remote probes into the far reaches of space. Now, many consider Empire to be the best of the trilogy, perhaps the best of the entire series, and I don't disagree with that largely. But I would put Revenge of the Sith up against Empire any day, just with importance to the story alone, and not to mention the fight scene on Mustafar being the best duel in the entire series, aside from the duel of fates between Qui-Gon Jinn, Obi-Wan, and Darth Maul in Phantom. And, I mean, look, that's just a fact. Alright, last and quite possibly least, we have The Return of the Jedi. Luke Skywalker has returned to his home planet of Tatooine in an attempt to rescue his friend Han Solo from the clutches of the vile gangster Jabba the Hutt. Little does Luke know that the Galactic Empire has secretly begun construction on a new armored space station even more powerful than the first dreaded Death Star. When completed, this ultimate weapon will spell certain doom for the small band of rebels struggling to restore freedom to the galaxy. It's a good thing the crawler doesn't mention the Ewoks because you're already like way invested in the movie, let alone the series, by the time they're introduced into the most important plot arc concerning the climax and destruction of the Empire. Also, nothing makes me happier than when that one Ewok dies in a grenade explosion and his comrade who survives grieves over his friend's lifeless corpse. Still way better than Jar Jar Binks though. Well alrighty, now that you're up to speed on the crawlers and summaries of each film, let's get into the facts behind the original trilogy, and just the facts. I'll be saving the tinfoil hat stuff for the conspiracy corner after the interview with Danielle. Kicking things off with episode 4, which was released in 1977 to mixed critical reviews, this sci-fi classic was the impetus for an entire franchise that still sees additional installments under production to this very day. This was George Lucas's third major motion picture and his first successful sci-fi film, with THX 1138 meeting critical acclaim in 1971, but not commercial success like that of the Star Wars franchise. Having been passed up by United Artists, Universal, and Disney, irony, 
Lucas brought the treatment for The Star Wars to Fox in hopes of getting his space western with hints of James Bond put to film. This last-ditch effort worked, and the project was initially greenlit for an $8 million budget based on Lucas's success with American Graffiti in 1973. Lucas had two caveats for his contract. One was that he retained the rights to all sequels, and two, that he owned the international merchandising rights in perpetuity. Foresight that can only have come with a strong connection to the Force. Released in 1977, Star Wars was literally the biggest sci-fi film to have ever been made up to that point and garnered both critical and commercial acclaim as the highest grossing film at the time, immediately bolstering the film to international recognition and a staple in pop culture, winning six Academy Awards. We can thank Brian De Palma for a lot of things regarding the formation of the movie, but most of all we can thank him for a succinct and iconic opening crawl. He took the six-paragraph behemoth that Lucas wanted to open with and edited it down to the palatable and descriptive opening format we've all come to expect from the Star Wars franchise. In the more modern Star Wars films, the crawl is created with digital effects, but back in 1977, it was a physical creation. They had a huge six-foot-long piece of black paper with the yellow text placed on top, and they passed the camera over the paper and filmed it in such a way to make it look like the words are moving away. Lucas was adamant in casting that he wanted to use, quote, unknowns to fill the major roles, and with that, Robert Englund auditioned for the part of Luke. He later became famous in the 80s for playing the iconic horror villain Freddy Krueger. After his audition, Englund had a moan to his pals about how badly he'd done, but said to one of them, who was also an actor, actually, you know what, I think you'd be a really great fit for it. That pal was Mark Hamill. Hamill auditioned, and the rest, as they say, is history. As was the case with Luke, there was a huge casting process to find Princess Leia. Thousands of actresses auditioned, many of whom would go on to be famous. Most of notable mention are Karen Allen, Nancy Allen, Kim Basinger, Bonnie Bedelia, Glenn Close, Gina Davis, Farrah Fawcett, Melanie Griffith, Barbara Hershey, Angelica Houston, Margot Kidder, Jessica Lange, Jane Seymour, Sybil Shepard, Sissy Spacek, Meryl Streep, Kathleen Turner, Sigourney Weaver, Diane Wiest, Linda Blair, and Deborah Winger all auditioned for the role of Princess Leia, and one other very famous actress turned down the role, that'd be Jodie Foster, who wanted to do it but was already working on two other films. When Carrie Fisher auditioned, Lucas said that he liked her straight away because when she walked in, they asked her, are you Debbie Reynolds' daughter? She replied, no, Debbie Reynolds is my mother. Which is true. They also died a day apart. Which is kind of sweet. Lucas said that he based the personality of Han on his filmmaker pal Francis Ford Coppola, and his first plans for Han Solo were that he was going to be played by a black actor. Billy D. Williams, who later played Lando Calrissian in The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi, auditioned, and Lucas settled on Glenn Turman, who was most well known for appearing in Cooley High in 1975. Lucas then changed his mind arbitrarily and went with a white actor. In these new auditions, there were again lots of names that came up for the part of Han Solo. Most notably, we have Kurt Russell, Nick Nolte, Christopher Walken, Sylvester Stallone, John Travolta, Chevy Chase, which would have been awesome, and James Woods were all considered. James Caan, Jack Nicholson, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, and Burt Reynolds all turned down the role. Pacino said, quote, It was mine for the taking, but... I didn't understand the script. hoo Harrison Ford had worked with Lucas before in American Graffiti, and the year after that, he had been in Coppola's The Conversation in 1974. But by then, the roles had dried up for Ford, and with a young family, went into an honest job as a carpenter. However, because of their previous ties, Lucas asked Ford to help out in the screen test for Luke and Leia, and read the part of Han Solo. During these tests, Lucas realized that Ford was, in fact, perfect for the role of Han Solo. Lucas had inspiration from shows like Flash Gordon and from the films of Kurosawa. From the opening crawl effect to story arcs and visual transition, Lucas drew heavily from existing sci-fi influences and reinterpreted them to fit his narrative in unique and compelling ways that permeate throughout the franchise. Now, before we move on, I have to talk about Darth Vader and Richard Prose. I mean, gotta love the man for being the stand-in actor that portrays Darth Vader whenever he has his helmet on, but 
Otherwise, he just didn't have the menacing voice or usable face required for such an imposing figure. Here's a clip of what I mean. I'm a member of the Imperial Senate on a diplomatic... You are part of the Rebel Alliance and a traitor. Take her away. Imagine not having James Earl Jones as the voice behind the mask, and just this huge lumbering Scotsman with a muffled voice instead. I mean, friggin' hilarious. I couldn't imagine it. Alright, now that brings us to Episode 5, The Empire Strikes Back. In keeping with that excellent financial foresight he's known for, Lucas wanted to avoid sharing creative rights on the film. So he financed the film's multi-million dollar budget himself using a bank loan and his profits from the original Star Wars. He created the Chapter 2 company, a subsidiary, to help minimize the financial risks associated with self-financing the movie. This decision eventually paid off, with Lucas making back the money at the box office and sharing millions in profits with his employees. Despite having directed the first film, Lucas decided not to direct the sequel due to his other roles as the head of Industrial Light and Magic. Lucas went to Irvin Kirshner, his former professor at the USC School of Cinematic Arts, to direct the film. Kirshner declined the offer at first, believing sequels are never as good as their predecessors, but eventually agreed to the film after his agent demanded that he take the job. While we are now very used to a film ending with the names of the directors, producers, writers, etc., this was not originally the norm. Many films began with the opening credits, with the original Star Wars being a rare instance where they come at the end. It was also allowed back then, as the Lucasfilm production company name appeared at the beginning, and George Lucas wrote and directed the original. However, with The Empire Strikes Back, the Writers and Directors Guild of America objected to this, as Irvin Kirshner directed the film, and Lee Brackett and Lawrence Kasdan wrote it, and they did not want their names at the end of the film. Lucas wanted to preserve the dramatic opening sequence, and he was fined over $250,000 by the guilds, who attempted to pull the film out of theaters. Kirshner was fined $25,000 by the Directors Guild of America as well, which in 1980 money is definitely nothing to scoff at. It's surprising that The Empire Strikes Back managed to be the masterpiece it is with the number of production issues during filming. Many scenes were filmed at Elstree Studios near London, where many of the film's sets were built. At the same time, Stanley Kubrick was filming scenes from The Shining at the same studio. A fire broke out on the set of The Shining, which ended up forcing the Empire budget to increase from $18.5 million to $22 million. That's okay, though, because International Box Office brought $549 million. Alright, let's bring it on home with Episode 6, The Return of the Jedi. When it came to decide on the title for the third entry in the Star Wars saga, creator George Lucas settled on Return of the Jedi, but co-screenwriter Lawrence Kasdan and film studio 20th Century Fox thought that it was too bland, so the collaborators decided to change the title to Revenge of the Jedi. The title stuck all the way through production up to the early marketing of the movie with a teaser trailer and posters sporting the Revenge moniker. But Lucas realized that Jedi technically doesn't seek revenge in the mythology he created, so the title was changed back to Return of the Jedi before the movie opened on May 25th in 1983. Lucas eventually used the Revenge of naming convention in the third prequel in the saga, 2005's Revenge of the Sith. The fandom frenzy surrounding the third and supposedly final installment of the saga was at such a fever pitch with cast, crew members, and the public willing to leak any new information about the storyline they could, that Lucas intentionally named the movie something completely different during filming. He chose the fake title Blue Harvest, a play on the 1929 Dashiell Hammett novel Red Harvest, and even featured the fake tagline Horror Beyond Imagination to throw fans off the trail, as well as to help keep production costs down on the blockbuster so location scouts wouldn't be price gouged if certain locations were chosen for the production. Makes sense. While fan speculations is nothing more than a click away now, it's nothing new. The original Star Wars fan club was in full swing in 1983, and the Lucasfilm staff received tons of letters from fans speculating on any number of out-there rumors about what they thought would happen in the upcoming film. Rumors around the release of the film included how Boba Fett was a beautiful woman assassin in disguise who turned out to be Luke's mother, or that the Emperor was a clone of Obi-Wan. One rumor that was thankfully thwarted was that Yoda wasn't set to make the cast of the film. 
Markand requested Lucas and Kasdan include Yoda in Return of the Jedi, even though the co-screenwriters were going to leave the little green Jedi out altogether. The original idea was to begin the film after Luke had completed his training with Yoda on Dagobah, but Markand insisted they restructure the story so that the audience wouldn't feel cheated for not seeing Luke's Jedi training completed. Lucas also reportedly agreed to include Yoda because he needed an independent character to confirm Darth Vader's claim to audiences that he is, in fact, Luke Skywalker's father. Speaking of Vader, by the time Return of the Jedi was released, fans had been waiting to catch a glimpse of the face of the evil Darth Vader for years. What they got when the Dark Lord of the Sith finally removed his mask was the face of 78-year-old British actor, director, novelist, playwright, and poet Sebastian Shaw. But the Royal Shakespeare Company performer and World War II vet wasn't the filmmaker's first choice. Lucas and Markin originally wanted to have a recognizable face staring back at audiences after the unmasking and attempted to call a well-known movie star like Laurence Olivier to make a cameo as Vader. But after pre-production story sessions, they changed their minds and thought a nondescript person would make for a better impact in the moment. I happen to agree. Now, you know that we can't talk about this film at its ending without getting into the Ewoks. It seems everybody on the production except Lucas hated the Ewoks, the furry inhabitants of Endor. Cast and crew detested what they thought was a marketing cash grab, especially with the final dance scene. Ralph McQuarrie refused to work on designs for them once he realized what Lucas actually wanted. They were starting to look like teddy bear-like, and I wasn't for that, so I gave them three or four drawings that I thought were right on and said, that's it. Now, if you don't like those, I'm out of this competition. The name Ewoks uh, was inspired by the Miwoks, meaning people, a Native American tribe that lived in Marin and southern Sonoma County in Northern California, where a lot of the film was actually captured. Nice sentiment, I guess? Shitty story device. They could have just as easily never been integrated into the plot, and the movie would have been all the better off without them. And that's just a fact. Up next, we have an interview with one of my favorite Portland comedians and repeat guest here on Science Factual, Danielle Porter. We've talked about Futurama in Episode 3 with Julia Corral and Lee Tillman, and Doctor Who for Episode 5, so make sure you check out those episodes as well. In the meantime, I got the chance to sit down with Danielle at Zeugelhaus Brewing before her weekly comedy showcase there to discuss the iconic Star Wars trilogy. Cool. Well, hi, Danielle. Hello. Hi. How's it going? It's going. Uh, pleasure to pleasure to be here at, at Zoigel House. Yeah. Cheers with you. We always go to beer places when yeah. we do our podcasting. That's I'm alright with that. It's a good time. There are definitely worse places to be. Um, I'm having their their German style IPA. It's really good. Okay. Yeah. All right. I will have to put that in my notes as something to try when I drink beer again. <laughs> right on. Yeah. Love the name, too. Zoigel House. It's very German. Very. Very German. Uh, why not Zoigel House? Uh, but we are here to talk about Star Wars. Yeah. Episodes 4, 5, and 6, the mm -hmm. original trilogy. Uh, we're also going to shoehorn Rogue One in there yeah. at the end. So super excited to talk with you about it. Um, before we do get started, uh, let's start with your, what is your Instagram? So my Instagram handle is making you laugh underscore maybe. Making you laugh maybe. Love the handle. Um, Thanks. People just tell me it's too long. <laughs> it's just right. <laughs> I'll take it. So uh, let me ask you this. How did you first get started in stand-up comedy? Because you've, been, you've run a number of shows now. Yeah. Which is awesome. And uh, But it, nobody's, nobody starts with running shows. No. Oh, God, think. no. <laughs> uh, if you are, you were not prepared for what you were signing up for. I kind of wanted to test out the waters a little bit. I got very into the 2016 election. I got very into political satire. And I just fell really in love with... The Daily Show and their writing style and stuff like that, and Samantha Bee and John Oliver, and I was like, "Love Samantha Bee, she's hysterical, amazing." So I was just like, "I want to do this. Like, this is what I want to do. I want to do comedy." And basically, what ended up happening was, I had a friend who wanted to try stand-up comedy, and so he and I like sat down together and wrote out a bunch of bits and like we performed them in front of each other until we felt like we were ready to go to an open mic. 
And the first open mic we went to was Helium Comedy Club. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, he got on. I did not. So my first official mic was at Brody Theater, which no longer exists. Mm, okay. I been, didn't, didn't go to that one. It was, it was downtown. Kickstand had it for a while before the pandemic. And then I, I think it's just empty now because Kickstand got rid of it. But, um, yeah, so I, I did that. I tried a couple more times. I waited probably four months. And then I continue to go in December 20, the end of 2017, and started going like religiously in 2018. Yeah, 2016 I'm sure was a big catalyst. Yeah. Uh, especially with, with the inclination towards political humor. Uh, yes, absolutely. Wouldn't be the first time that we elected a clown, though. Oh my god, no, not, not even a little bit. <laughs> What was your first exposure to science fiction, just in general? Because we, we've talked about a number of things. We talked about Futurama, we talked about Doctor Who, um, now Star Wars. But what, what was the impetus for your... Well, my parents were really big um, Star Trek fans, and they loved Star Wars, and they went to this uh, convention every year. It was on my birthday. Uh, it was called... The, it was just like the Star Trek convention, and so they would just go to that every year and um they'd come back and they'd like talk about like the new movies that were coming out and they'd have posters and stuff like that and so I think just naturally because of what was around the house and everything and what they were watching I got more into that sort of thing and my dad was a big fan of Star Wars and we had a bunch of action figures growing up and stuff and I had like a um a Leia doll and like a bunch of other like I got a ton of like Queen Emma Dahlia dolls and stuff like that as a kid and like I even had a Star Wars themed birthday when I was I think it was like my fifth birthday and my birthday cake had the scene of Darth Maul, Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan just all facing off like nice. with like the paper that you could eat. Oh so. nice yeah the Duel of Fates is probably is, is the second in my opinion the second best lightsaber duel mm -hmm. uh, with the battle between Anakin and Obi-Wan yeah. and Safar being the best one obviously. Yeah, I do kind of feel like the later ones that they did um, after the original trilogy got kind of sloppy in their fighting, but really it was it was two, like Attack of the Clone Wars, that one, that, that lightsaber fight where they're like being like rocks thrown them and everything, I was just like, that's ridiculous. Oh, the one between Yoda and Count Dooku. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that one was a little bit of a CGI flex. It was I too much. Like. Yeah, it, was it was too much. Too I actually much. dated a dude who, uh, his dad was one of the graphic designers for Phantom Menace, and he was in it. And so I was just like, yeah, that w that was ridiculous. Some of it was ridiculous. Yeah, I, uh, I mean, there's a, there's a lot going on there. I, a lot of people hate the Phantom Menace and just the original trilogy in mm -hmm. general. Yeah. Um, I have. I, I grew up with it, oh, so me too. it was. Yeah. You know, like I was in line. I saw them as in Dark theaters. Yeah. I, I grew up on four, five, and six, and then as I was like really into it, is when they announced one, and then plans for mm -hmm. two and three. I was just like, oh shit, it is on. Yeah. Super stoked. Uh, wasn't anything but Star Wars characters for Halloween mm -hmm. for as long as I could remember. Um, I think before that, I was Garfield. <laughs> You know? <laughs> I had Jar Jar being chopstick. You did? <laughs> I did. Nice. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the, good for George Lucas for retaining international merchandising rights. Like, yeah. I, I mean, what a genius. Yeah, that's a smart move. I think he learned his lesson with the Ewoks too, but we'll get it. We'll get to them in a minute. So, what was your first exposure to Star Wars? Do you remember like the first time that you saw? Like, because I'm assuming the first one that you saw was a New Hope. I think what happened was my. Dad and my mom brought home the poster for Phantom Menace, okay. and it was just on the wall, and I was just like, what is this? And my dad started explaining what the Star Wars movies were, and I don't have the exact memory of the first time I watched it, because I was relatively young, um, but I we had six cassette tapes of it and it was we had two different trilogies with two different casings of the original three and so like yeah I would just watch them anytime and then Phantom Menace came out and we got it on DVD because DVDs were starting to be a thing and then you know I would watch Phantom Menace and then I'd watch four, five, and six. Yeah, yeah. For me it was uh, I, <clears throat> I remember my parents had gotten separated I, was, I just turned nine years old, and the gal that my dad was seeing happened to have all of four, all of the original trilogy and all of the uh, Indiana Jones films. So I watched 
all of that mm -hmm. while they were doinking in the next room. And, uh, you know, I fell in love with Star became Wars. became a fan. Yeah, I was totally a fan of hearing anything but that. Also, yeah, the but, term doinking is just... Yeah. <laughs> or if it was here, they'd be zonking. <laughs> it was definitely an escape mechanism for me. Same thing with, you know, like reading books when I was a kid. I'd always read myself to sleep so that I would dream and that. I'd always, like, fall asleep watching Star Wars. And I, I, I remember just watching them over and over and over mm -hmm. again. And then when the announcement for Phantom Menace came, I was like, oh, finally, something for me. And yeah. Then, oh, I had, a, I had a Monopoly Star Wars game. Oh, and nice. I also had a life... Star Wars game that I would play religiously. Oh, I, I kind of, I kind of want to play the life Star Wars. That sounds pretty rad. The this, the life Star Wars one was it. We got that one later, but the Monopoly one came in like this gold box. It was for Phantom Menace, and it was that's pretty tight. It was beautiful. It was like one of my favorite things. Like the houses were like shaped like part of the Empire. It was amazing. It was such a cool. That's pretty rad. Yeah. I, I would I would like to play that as well. Because I, I did the pod racing for mm -hmm. N64. That was... I didn't play any of the video games, but we also we also had, like, a... My dad got one of the pod... Like, a small little action, like, pod racer that we had that I was never allowed to touch. Right. No, of course not. Yeah, I've had friends who have built, you know, model Millennium Falcons and mm. things like that that have, you know, the lights and, and the sounds and all this, that, and the third, and... Play with it. You should play with it. Yeah. I feel like you, I feel like you should. If you got it, you should play with it. Yeah, for sure. Um, I've broken like twenty lightsabers. <laughs> we had um, we got one for Hanukkah. Uh, my sister and I we got them for Hanukkah. It was me, my dad, and my sister got the Darth Maul ones, and then I got Qui Gon's. And we that's a, that's a solid Hanukkah gift. Yeah, and we Hanukkah's played lightsaber. Like a, a back to school holiday. We got a lot of socks also, yeah. but like we played with like socks. the lightsabers and like hit around and everything like that's, that. It was a good time. Up. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that they used a lot of Ewoks for kindling, <laughs> and rightfully so. So, uh, who is your favorite character throughout the movies? Ooh, my favorite characters throughout the movies. Um, you know, when I was little, I was I always was loved Princess Leia. Um, I love Carrie Fisher. Like I just like love who she became like she went through like a lot of shit to become the person that she became which um is in part because of star wars i don't necessarily know if i have a favorite character as an adult now like sure. i think han solo is too cocky for me and like i think they all have their fuck-ups and so it's like hard for me to choose just one yeah like yeah definitely as a kid it was leia but as an adult i'm just kind of like I don't know. I watch them. I watch some movies at least once a year, so it's like when I'm in the mood, I'm right. like, okay, let's see what they do now. You know? Yeah. Let's see how I feel about this character this round. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, so growing up for me, my favorite character was Chewbacca, mm -hmm. just because I was a big kid. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's, he's just a pure rebel who's like down for whatever. So long yeah. as it's like contrarian and against the Empire, I was like, all right, I'm about that. <laughs> I, I went as a, a rebel fighter pilot mm -hmm. when I was a kid a lot. I had a cardboard uh, X-Wing that I'd wear with suspenders and then <laughs> for, for trick-or-treat and then I'd go around. Um, you did the whole DIY oh, yeah. costume oh, thing. Yeah. Oh, eventually I, would, I had little uh, red light nodes that I would stick through the ends of the X-Wing and then and then glue a battery pack to the back and turn. Oh yeah! Wow! Yeah, my shit was tight. Um, but but Darth I, Darth Vader is probably my favorite character. Mm -hmm. Just like for the redemption arc. Um, yeah. Regardless of how badly you perceive yourself or are perceived by others, that there is a chance yeah. to do the right thing. I guess. Uh, it, that's not to condone like, a lot I... of the shit that people do, but. I guess I have a hard time with that, like, as an adult, watching these storylines where it's, like, these redemption storylines, not just specific to Star Wars, but, like, you just see these redemption storylines, and I'm just like, yeah, but they still did, like, these shitty things, and they should still be held accountable for those shitty yeah, things. Yeah, oh, well, I, I couldn't agree more. There, there should definitely be accountability, but at, at the same time, I, I like to see 
somebody try to do the right thing mm-hmm. when they've been doing the wrong thing for so long? I mean, when, when he when he does kill the emperor, it's like it, it is basically because he's like, oh, I'm seeing you do to someone else what you did to me, and like right. I'm able to see past the Stockholm syndrome that I've described right. to like for so long, and finally see that like, okay, I should do something about this. Sure. And, and I think that's the thing with, like, in the later movies, it's, like, you can see the moment where he's taken over, and it's just, like, he just, like, felt like there was nothing else he could do, but, like, watching it, you're, like, no, you could just fucking leave. Like, you could just be, like... Yeah, when he's so um, enthralled with the Emperor's bullshit in Revenge of the Sith, like, yeah. a- after he blocks Mace Windu and, like, then the Emperor, you know, like, attacks him, mm-hmm. and he's like, okay, well, that's it. Like, I have now officially stepped against the Jedi. Right. I have no other option but to go with the Sith. Mm-hmm. But, I-, I mean, the thing about Anakin is that he was conceived by the midichlorian, like, mm-hmm. I mean, he's pure force, basically. Yeah. So, like, it, it's not a surprise that that he was flipped so sure. quickly. Uh, and, and it wasn't necessarily so quickly. I mean, in the in the prequel trilogy, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, Palpatine takes his time over the course of time to really get into Anakin's head. Sure. Well, and, and that's the thing is, I think the whole time, like, it wasn't Anakin's thoughts necessarily. It was him manipulating those thoughts, and then Anakin was like, "Oh, these have." be my thoughts instead of being like huh maybe somebody's like controlling me or something you know like because like if it was like a kid show it like it would have they would have figured it out way quicker it would have been like oh we got to stop him he's in my head you know right yeah no that's totally true and i think that speaks to the power of palpatine Mm -hmm. yeah the fact that he was able to hide in plain sight from people even like yoda uh, you know, that's, that's I mean, I guess I thing. wasn't surprised by that because of the way politicians are now. Sure. Yeah. Talk. Yeah. Talk about. And it's like political it's a inside. very political movie when you think about it. Oh, absolutely. I, I think that the original intent of the Empire was to represent like fascism or totalitarianism, sure, yeah. and it does a good job of doing that. Mm-hmm. I think that the continuation into 789 with the First Order mm-hmm. is just a statement on how, like, the void will be filled by mm-hmm. someone yeah. or something. You know, like, evil will exist regardless. Yeah. Not to jump into that, but the whole thing with Luke being somewhat, like, turned apathetic about it, and he's just like, you know what, I kind of don't give a shit anymore. Like, yeah. you, you guys figure it out. Because uh, I've tried, and every time that I've tried, I mean, it's, it's the been... same thing with Yoda. Like it's right. this, oh, yeah. it's the same exact story. Yeah. It's just with a new generation. Is yeah. basically what it is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's an excuse to use new CGI. Sure. I mean, yeah. it, and they do a good job of it. I suppose, like especially like in Rogue One with um, Peter Cushing's character, Grand Moff Tarkin. Like mm-hmm. they do a pretty solid job, and it's only improving. Yeah. Like with Mark Hamill's like half deep fake return uh, with that actor who looks a hell of a lot like him mm-hmm. uh, in The Mandalorian and in Book of Boba Fett. I, I haven't mean, watched The Mandalorian. Oh no! <laughs> I just spoiled it to a major degree. He comes back. Anyway, um, enjoy that. It's, it's actually, it's a, it's a fun, uh, it's a fun. It's on my list. Like, I started, I tried to watch um, Clone Wars, the animated, animated series, series yeah. and I... I got bored really fast oh, in it because no. it was I love, like I think it was just the build up of it was too slow for me. Sure. And so like I wasn't in a. It was during the pandemic, so I was like, might as well tr- try it. And it's it's a little important insofar as like the context mm-hmm. regarding the Mandalorian's main story arc mm-hmm. because of like how Mandalore was integral integral rather in the the whole Clone Wars mm-hmm. animated series arc. Stuff like the Dark Saber, what happens to Darth Maul after mm-hmm. uh, Phantom, mm-hmm. uh, which is super. I, I love that story arc as well. Uh, you know, Anakin's uh, Padawan Ahsoka Tano, mm-hmm. that's, and uh, Asajj Ventress and Count Dooku's whole story. Like, dude, mm-hmm. I can go on and on about Clone Wars animated series. It's one of my favorite, but I highly encourage you to, to go back to that and then definitely watch. You can even watch with your knowledge of the rest of the mm-hmm. ser- the series. Go from Clone Wars to Mandalorian and Book of Boba Fett, mm-hmm. and totally be right there with with the information, which is pretty rad. Is there a character that you identify with the most? I know I asked you who your favorite character is, but like, 
I mean, I mean, like the woman in me wants to be like Leia, you know, because it's like sure. she's like this very empowered character, and like, you know, like she is still a, a person. I, I mean, I feel like Luke is also like he's not fully taken seriously in the beginning, and like he has to build that. And I feel like I can relate to that in that way, where it's like, you know, I'm not necessarily taken very serious, but like I'm starting to get places and now people are like oh Danielle you know so like oh Luke in that way yeah it's like, like well when you first start out you're like Luke in New Hope and now you feel like you're more like Luke in Empire sure yeah, yeah you've come back you've got sweet threads <laughs> yeah you, you got a green lightsaber you're here to fuck shit up yeah you figured you figured it out you're, you're getting shit done yeah absolutely you might lose a hand in the process but <laughs> he got a new one yeah he sure did Oh, I forgot to I forgot to change this question from the last one, but who's your least favorite character and why is it Jar Jar Binks? And, th- and that could still apply. I, I mean, it, he's not in four, five, and six, but um, and, and I'm glad. But hey, it, when I was a kid, I actually really liked Jar Jar Binks. Like that really? was the point of his character was supposed to be relatable for the kids. So like when I was a kid, I liked him. As an adult, I think he's fucking obnoxious, and I kind of wish George Lucas would have done the storyline about Jar Jar Binks being the like a part yes. of the Sith. Like I really yes. think that would have been better. I agree. I really wish that they would have gone into that. It's my favorite fan theory. It's a great fan theory. It is totally plausible. Yeah. If not probable. It would make a lot of sense. It would make a lot of sense. Zoigel House. Yeah, Zoigel House. Gotta love it. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I really wish that they would have extrapolated on that. It's just that people hated him so much. And mm-hmm. I totally get it. Now that Disney owns all of it, yeah, and they're doing stuff like Obi Wan, they're doing well, stuff. Disney wants the money from they it. They want the money. They can I, mass I, produce it. I would love to have them just set out a teaser trailer mm-hmm. of all of the examples of Darth Jar Jar throughout the first three films, mm-hmm. and cut to him, or just cut to like two eyes opening that are like his eyes, obviously, but reddish orange, mm-hmm. and maybe a lightsaber, you know, engaging with the glow, yeah. lighting up the rest of his face. Fuck, did we just write this? I think we might have just, <laughs> we, we might be writing the opening to the next Disney Plus I think series. that you should get in touch with Disney fast. I think so too. Uh, I mean, they, they listen, they're anxiously awaiting the, the drop of this podcast, so. Obviously. Yeah, they'll, they'll we'll be in touch. So, have you, have you watched, have you spent the time to watch the new one, ones? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. No, so um, I've done... Because it's over 24 hours of Star Wars. <laughs> so I've done one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and, and eight. I haven't okay. seen nine. Okay. It just... I won't speak then on it. But, but I've, see, I've I've looked up all the information okay. on it. I just haven't myself sat down and watched it because like everybody sure. was bitching about it, yeah. and I was just like, it's not the time for me. Like I, I'm a I'm a big fan of trilogies. I love to watch like a bunch of shit in a row. Yeah. Um, well, I'm meeting with Zane next week. Mm-hmm. Zane Thomas, um, shout out the Smoke Break with him and Amanda Lynn Deal. It's an awesome show. Also on Shady Pines Radio. Check that out. Uh, but he and I are going to talk about seven, eight, nine. Mm-hmm. I kind of hate them. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people hate them. I think a lot of people who respect the originals it's don't forced. like the new ones. It is the whole new set of things is forced. It's yeah. Disney. Yeah. But they crushed it with Rogue One. I just watched it yesterday. I actually really enjoyed it. It is so good. Yeah, it was. It was actually because I heard it's bad. Dark. I heard bad things about Rogue One, so that's why I didn't. I I tried to watch it one day and I like got maybe five minutes in and I was just like I don't want to watch this right now and then I watched it yesterday because I was like I haven't watched it might as well watch it and I actually really it is dark I really enjoyed that it was like it doesn't always end happily ever after they all just fucking die yeah yeah the the whole Scarif raid like it, it, it the way that it ties in too with the escape from the the rebel flagship on Leia's individual ship leading right into the opening sequence of episode four was brilliant writing. It was. It was great tie-in. Yeah. Way better than the solo story. I mean, I mean, I, I, have you seen that? I have not. Okay. I mean, if, if you were going to skip one, Mm -hmm. 
I mean, you can kind of skip that one. Is Solo just like the Phantom Menace? Yeah, I, out of out of the newest stuff, yeah, I would I would say it's probably within the same hated vein of, mm-hmm. of the Phantom Menace. Yeah, uh, I like Donald Glover. I love Donald Glover. Great, he was great. Young Lando would have loved to have seen him as Spider Man. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. I, out of the newest stuff that they've made, the Solo story is not my favorite. Mm-hmm. Uh, Danielle, uh, tell me this. Where can we hear you perform next? So I run two weekly shows. At uh, One is at Zoigel Husband Company at 8 p.m. on Mondays. And I run another weekly show with Scott II as my co-host at Growler's Tap Room out on 82nd in Morrison. My next show that I have coming up not related to me and my shows is I am doing a show at the Infinity Room at 8 p.m. on Friday. Nice. So that'll be a fun show. Shout out to Emma Jones-Pace. Shout out to Chris over at Infinity Room in Salem, one of my favorite venues in all of Oregon for sure. Um, and, and all of your upcoming shows we can see at making you laugh underscore maybe on Instagram. You have those listed there as well, I'm assuming. Not right now, but I'm going to do it. I've, I didn't have a big uh, turnout at the beginning of May, but now my May is booked up. So. Nice. Well, I, I look forward to seeing you around. Looking forward to the showcase as well as the tap that. Uh, speaking of science fiction, the Joes over at Growlers, what is it, Thursdays they have Star Trek trivia? I think it's Thursdays. Yeah, I um, I need to make my way over there, and I'm having the Joes on for Deep Space Nine episodes. That's so, awesome. Yeah, I love so that. Stoked to have them on as well. Yeah. Well, Danielle, thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me again. It was fun. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, looking forward to the show. Yeah, it'll be a good time. If you haven't been to the Zweigel House Comedy Showcase, I highly recommend it. You can check them out on Instagram at Zweigel House Brewing. That's Z-O-I-G-L-H-A-U-S Brewing. Or visit them on location at 5716 Southeast 92nd Avenue in Portland, Oregon for some of the best damn brew I've had the pleasure of ingesting. Oh, and before we take out our tinfoil hats, make sure to check out Danielle's other shows around Portland. Those include another weekly showcase called Tap That on Saturdays at the very awesome Growler's Tap Room on Southeast 82nd, as well as Everything In Between, which is a monthly showcase taking place the third Friday of every month at Fourth Wall PDX. You can find them on the Instagram machine at the Fourth Wall PDX. That's with a numeric four in there. Mmm, yes, it's Conspiracy Corner time. This week's conspiracy comes courtesy of ScreenRant.com, and it has to do with one of the most glossed-over setup scenes in the whole franchise. The untimely deaths of Owen and Baru Lars, aka Uncle Owen and Aunt Baru. Now, for years, Star Wars fans have speculated that Boba Fett secretly killed Owen and Beru Lars, and there's significant evidence hinting at it. The primary support comes way back in the 80s in The Empire Strikes Back. In the film, Darth Vader tells various bounty hunters that there will be a substantial reward for tracking down the Millennium Falcon. He makes a point of saying he wants the Rebels alive and points directly at Boba Fett, saying, No disintegrations. He warns the bounty hunter of this, specifically. Considering Owen and Beru were left as charred skeletons on Tatooine, the disintegration line could reference the murders. Additionally, despite what Alec Guinness's version of Obi-Wan Kenobi says in A New Hope, stormtroopers are notoriously bad at their aim. This may further hint that someone else is responsible for the deaths of Owen and Beru. We've also seen that phaser blasts don't fully disintegrate individuals and turn them into skeletons. From a certain point of view is a canon 2017 Star Wars anthology chronicling a new hope from different perspectives. One of the short stories in the novel tells Boba Fett's perspective, showing he didn't kill Owen and Beru. In the Boba Fett story, Added Muscle, the bounty hunter explains he previously crisped rebel spies on Coruscant, which seemingly prompted Vader's line about disintegration. To get on Darth Vader's good side, he takes up the hunt for R2-D2 and C-3PO, 
and eventually discovers Owen and Beru Lars's destroyed moisture farm. Because the story reveals that Boba Fett arrived after Owen and Beru were dead, from a certain point of view seem to discredit theories that Boba Fett was the real murderer. So far as that one story goes, I mean all other evidence and supporting context points to the otherwise. Anyway, the Book of Boba Fett premiere includes an easter egg that references Owen and Beru's moisture farm attack. In the series premiere, Tusken Raiders capture Boba Fett after he escapes from the Sarlacc pit. Eventually, a young Tusken Raider takes Boba Fett and a Rodian prisoner to a homestead eerily similar to Owen and Beru's. Three watch while unknown assailants trash the place and leave it smoking, much like what happens to the moisture farm in A New Hope. While watching the group destroy the homestead, Boba Fett has a pained look on his face, almost as if he's experiencing a shameful and familiar sight. Because he totally actually killed Owen and Beru! Okay. Though, from a certain point of view, attempts to debunk the Boba Fett theory, Book of Boba Fett may be changing things. The Star Wars Easter egg for Owen and Beru may hint that Boba Fett did in fact murder the moisture farmers and he's now ashamed of it. Additionally, the Book of Boba Fett premiere showcases the bounty hunter's penchant for fire, which he uses to escape the Sarlacc. This further connects him to Owen and Beru, who wind up as smoldering skeletons in A New Hope. He also disintegrates one of the assailants who attacks him in Mos Espa during the Book of Boba Fett premiere. If Book of Boba Fett confirms that the bounty hunter killed Owen and Beru, it could have far-reaching implications in the Star Wars universe and gives the series an entirely new meaning. Before the hints that Boba Fett murdered Owen and Beru, the series just seemed like a side mission, giving fans an exciting but standalone story about Boba Fett becoming a crime lord on Tatooine. However, if Boba Fett did murder Owen and Beru, it further connects Boba Fett's story to the main Star Wars saga. And like The Mandalorian did with Grogu, it would allow the series to bring back surprise characters such as Mark Hamill's Luke Skywalker. Now, I personally ascribe to the theory that Boba Fett did in fact kill the Lars family at the behest of Darth Vader or at the very least via Jabba. The connection between Vader and the Lars family, coupled with the likelihood that Vader had sensed Luke long before the events of the trilogy takes place, it stands to reason that he would have sourced a local bounty hunter such as Boba Fett in order to set in motion the events that would force Obi-Wan to take Luke away from Tatooine, which invariably brings Vader and Luke into contact with one another. Big if true. As always, I'd like to thank this week's sources, which include InAFarAwayGalaxy.com, ScreenRant.com, IMDB, DigitalSpy.com, StarWars.com, and Wikipedia. Because if it's on Wikipedia, not to mention the dozens of hours I've logged watching the original trilogy over the past 25 years. Time well spent. Next week, we keep things moving with the most recent trilogy addition to the Star Wars franchise, Episodes 7, 8, and 9, with a guest who I've been looking forward to interviewing since he's an incredibly talented musician, comedian, and all-around awesome dude. That's right, I'm talking about Zane Thomas. He's part of the Shady Pines Radio family as well, and has a great show with Amanda Lynn Deal called The Smoke Break, where they discuss mental health and comedy with some of Portland's top talent roster. So make sure you check out that podcast, as well as next week's episode. It's going to be rad. By the way, you can check out that episode and future episodes of Science Factual every Tuesday from 8 to 9 a.m., only on Shady Pines Radio. In the meantime, here's a recent set from Danielle Porter at the iconic Helium Comedy Club here in Southeast Portland. Enjoy. How's it going, everyone? <laughs> Guys, that was pathetic. How's it going? <laughs> we can pretend that it's not Sunday, I promise you. I have a super fun name, and when my parents were coming up with it, my dad's one request was that my initials wouldn't be PP, because those are his initials, and he's really bitter about it. So instead, my initials are DP. <laughs> Yeah, thanks, Dad. 
I once told that joke to an old roommate, and she goes, that's so funny. When you were telling that on stage, I was getting double penetrated. <laughs> yeah, one of us had a very different night. <laughs> I recently ended a seven-year friendship with my best friend. Don't feel too bad for us. We were both Tauruses. It wasn't going to work out. <laughs> we had a real will-they-won't-they-start-hating-each-other relationship. Very similar to the way Selena Gomez and Demi Lovato did on Barney. <laughs> but now we just have the relationship that they had. Uh, she pulled a Demi on me. She unfriended me on everything. Facebook, TikTok, Instagram. Y'all, I got unfriended on Venmo. <laughs> I didn't know you could get unfriended on Venmo. She rejected me the same way she rejected my $4.99 taco reimbursement request. <laughs> I'm in therapy. Yeah, you guys could tell, though. It's fine. I was, I was having a session with my therapist the other day, and I was like, I just need somebody to find me and come take me home. And my therapist goes, whoa, that gave me chills. But I didn't have the heart to tell her that I was just quoting Avril Lavigne. My mom's a hoarder. But not like in a fun way, like Wally. <laughs> the only thing she's been able to throw away is her marriage to my dad. <laughs> and even that took 25 years. I'm just saying, Wally kept the cockroach. <laughs> yeah, my dad's the cockroach in that joke. Y'all remember the song Father of Mine by Everclear? Yeah, they're from here. I would hope you guys would. Um, my dad was the one who showed me that song. I was like, what do you want? A cookie for staying? Just fucking leave and go get a pack of cigarettes. <laughs> I have high-functioning depression, clearly. <laughs> all it means is I can work really, really hard all day long and then go and cry in my car. I forgot to mention, I work from home. <laughs> Yeah, I actually work for my mom, the hoarder. I don't recommend it. Don't work for my mom. We mix business with childhood trauma. We're kind of like what happens if anybody eats Cinnabon. And if you're not laughing at that, that just means you haven't had to shit in an airport bathroom. And I kind of hate you a little. Recently, I saw my mom a few months back. She was drunk and cornered me in the kitchen. It was her birthday. And I was like, okay, mom, I'll give you a pass. And she looks at me and she goes, I'm just really disappointed that you're not in a committed relationship right now. And I was like, aren't you on your second divorce? Maybe you shouldn't be giving out life advice, Amy. Amy, that's her name. I'm kidding, that didn't happen. I just waited till she left the room and I started crying. Here's why I'm not dating. I'm, like, really not good at it. I was walking down the street the other day, and I saw this dead bird, and I was like, hmm, that looks a lot like me. Somebody else's problem now. <laughs> I used to be a nanny for a living. I know, I'm shocked that people trust me with their children, too. <laughs> I always wanted my nanny kids to be able to problem solve, so I just wouldn't play with her. <laughs> I quit nannying because my nanny kid told me she loved me more than she loved her parents. And then she took it back. <laughs> so I told her I was her real mom. <laughs> I'm not at that job anymore. I think the real reason why I quit nannying, though, is when I see kids, my body just starts bleeding. It's like, you're not ready for another abortion. <laughs> I recently sprayed my wrist about four and a half months ago from giving a guy a hand job. And yes, I'm just that good. But I do kind of feel like if you sprain your wrist while giving a guy a hand job, you're not as good as you think you are. Because to me, that feels a lot like a guy being like, baby, we're going to go all night. It's going to be amazing. And then he just winks at me and comes in my eye. A while back, I was wearing this black chunky wrist brace, and uh, it was covered in dog hair, and it smelled like I'd been wearing it for four and a half months. And I was hooking up with this dude, and he was super concerned about the placement of my wrist, but he had no concern about not using a condom. 
Okay, so the men in here don't wear condoms. <laughs> Guys, it's not that dark. I can see you. <laughs> you might be wondering, is it hard as a woman to get laid wearing a black chunky wrist brace that smells like you've been wearing it for four years and is covered in dog hair? And I have to be honest with you, it's really, really fucking easy. <laughs> like I could walk into Denny's and yell, and there'd be a line around the block, but only at Denny's. <laughs> Thank you.